Welcome to the American Thoracic Society Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology Committee podcast series on pediatric PAP adherence. This is the first podcast in the series. Today, we will discuss selecting optimal PAP settings to improve patient adherence. This podcast includes pediatric pulmonary psychology and sleep specialists nationally and is an open discussion on the role of adjusting different PAP settings. Our panel includes, in no particular order, Dr. Kelly Lee Harford, pediatric psychologist at the Emory and Children's Pediatric Institute and assistant professor at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Roberta Liu, pediatric sleep physician and director of sleep medicine for Emory and Children's Pediatric Institute and medical director at the Eggleston Sleep Lab at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and an assistant professor at Emory University School of Medicine. Dr. Wendy Ward, pediatric psychologist at Arkansas Children's and professor of pediatrics associated provost faculty and director of interpersonal faculty development at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock, Arkansas. She's also president of the Association of Psychologists in Academic Health Centers. Dr. Supriya Jambikar, pediatric pulmonologist at Arkansas Children's and associate professor in emergency medicine and sleep disorders at the University of Arkansas. Dr. Stephen Sheldon, Director of Sleep Medicine at Anne and Robert H. Laurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. He's Professor of Pediatric and Neurology at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He's also Chair of the AASM Foundation Development Council. Dr. Allison Clark, Pediatric Psychologist in the Pritzker Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at Anne and Robert H. Lurie, Children's Hospital of Chicago. She's an assistant professor at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Daniel Lewin, pediatric psychologist and sleep specialist. He's the director of the Sleep Health and Wellness Center in Santa Barbara, California. Miriam Weiss, pediatric nurse practitioner in the Department of Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Dr. Marnie Nagel, pediatric and sleep psychologist at Chalk Children's Hospital and manager of the psychology training program in the Department of Psychology. Dr. Amy Morris, a pediatric and sleep psychologist at Chalk Children's. And I am Dr. Shauna Chin from Chalk Children's Pediatric Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine. I'm a pediatric pulmonologist and sleep physician and an assistant clinical professor. I am part of the ATS SRN committee. The nuances of all our practices differ between practitioners and patients. This is a discussion on how our different practices nationally tackle these issues in our team-centered clinics. We will discuss how each practice selects optimal PAP pressures and utilizes CPAP versus BPAP versus auto-titrating modalities. For our practice at Chalk Children's, depending on a patient's age, diagnosis, and weight, we will select different initiating modalities. In our younger and smaller patients, we will often start with obtaining a PAP titration study first and then starting PAP at home. For our older patients, we will start trialing APAP settings at home, then bring, bring in patients later for a PAP titration study. In patients with tolerance issues, we will often opt for lower than optimal PAP settings as we slowly titrate the patient up to goal settings as to become more acclimated to the pressures, later bringing in psychology's involvement for patients with difficulty with adherence. So maybe I can go first. So uh, we do the same thing. We start on auto PAP and give a range. At the range, again, you know, is very arbitrary. 
So I look and I would really like uh, if anybody has guidance in this case, um, we just look at the child and if it's a smaller child and we give a sort of a shorter, smaller range. And if he's more adolescent or a bigger kid, then a bigger range. And then based on the download, if I, I've really never tried just giving, I've not come across a patient where they didn't really tolerate pressures on auto CPAP. I have seen cases where you get a residual AHI and then I end up narrowing the pressures or changing the pressures, or then eventually finding out what a fixed, good fixed pet uh, pressure would be based on what we get on the download. Unfortunately, I've really not seen a patient where I had to change from auto to fixed just because of you know intolerance. So if that helps. Usually if we have a lot of confusion, we'll try to get a titration, but then you know it's so far off where so you know overbooked that it's difficult. So I can go ahead and say what we do at our institution. So at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, um Dr. Harford would actually be able to tell us what us three different sleep physicians do, because I think we practice slightly differently. So when I get a patient that I'm starting, I order an auto CPAP, partly to get them acclimated, but also to start them on treatment, because usually there are more severe patients. And um, like Dr. Jambakar was saying, the wait to get in for the CPAP titration study in the lab can be quite long. So knowing that that could be a three to four month delay, we start the auto CPAP, and then I like for them to see Dr. Harford in clinic within the month. We were hoping two weeks, but that doesn't work out um, because of wait lists. So she sees them within the month. They have to bring their machine and their mask in. Frequently, we find mask issues at that appointment. Um, but she works with them on acclimating, and then we get them on the machine. And when they do get in for their titration study, which is about three to four months down the line from when I initially saw them, they are usually able to wear it um, by then and we get a, a, a more, we get a better quality study. Um, I usually do end up fixing their auto CPAP to the optimal pressure that we find on the titration study. And I just went into that practice more because of the question of whether or not, you know, the tidal volumes in small kids with, and their faster respiratory rate actually triggers the autopap appropriately to rely fully on the residual HI on the compliance report. That said, like Dr. Harford will tell you, like we do frequently look at that residual HI on the com on compliance report and we do use it to guide what we do over time. Um, but Dr. Harford, I, I believe our other provider one of our other providers does not follow that process. So. Right. So, so we have three providers currently, and two of them generally follow that process, and one practices slightly differently. Um, that provider um, generally um, will order a titration first before they start PAP at all. Um, and then we'll fix the pressure based on the titration. Um, they don't often order autopap. Um, sometimes in the older kids, they will order autopap, but almost never really in any of the younger kids. Um, and then I guess to answer the question of like starting at a lower pressure, I don't really think any of our three providers would start at a, a lower pressure. Sometimes what will happen is if we fix the pressure at, you know, whatever number um, and 
you know, maybe it got changed based on a titration from a lower setting um, and is not tolerated well by the child because of the change, they'll set it back um, just to increase tolerance with the idea being that at least they're wearing it versus they weren't tolerating the higher pressure at all. Um, and then sometimes clinically, you know, if we didn't have a previous pressure that was tolerated, but whatever pressure got assigned um, based on the titration just seems really high and the, the patient is really complaining, sometimes they'll back it down a little bit, but they wouldn't typically start at the lowest pressure and then go up. Usually they'll start at the fixed pressure and possibly go down. Interesting, so just to clarify. Oh, so just to clarify, are you seeing every single patient that comes in for PATH then? It sounds like you automatically get just a chance to see them. Our institution has not been like that because of resources. It's usually once so it tried varies. and failed. Okay. It varies again by provider. So we have three different providers and they all three practice differently. Um, so I basically see all of Dr. Liu's patients. <laughs> um, and the other two providers um, tend to send me either the patients that are proven to be more difficult or that they suspect will be more difficult. Um, yeah. So one question, so I, you know, when I um, recruited Dr. Hereford, <laughs> the ideal was that she was going to see all the patients. Um, but one thing that we've discussed over time is because the other two providers have done their practice a little differently. Um, so Dr. Harvard, have you noticed any differences in terms of our patient populations and I guess like who follows more of them or who has patients who are more compliant? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. And then my, my memory is, as you know, not the best and is clouded by this past year of misery dealing with this recall. Um, so it's, <laughs> there's, there's that part. Um, you know, it's hard because the other two providers, I tend to just get harder patients from them um, because that's the ones they send me. Um, but sometimes they suspect the patient will be hard and they come in and they're doing great. And then I follow them maybe two times and, you know, I just discharge them back to the provider to, to come back and see me if needed. Um, you tend to see just some harder patients in general because, um, you know, you're seeing the Rosata clinic patients. Um, so a lot of those we just know are harder patients. So your patients sometimes are harder as a rule. So Rosata's are a refractory OSA clinic where the kids have usually undergone their tonsils and adenoids, but also frequently lingual tonsils and revision adenoidectomy and so forth. And sometimes have already failed PEP, which is why they ended up right. to get more surgeries. Um, so. I'll, I'll just chime in as another psychologist in the group and say that we also had the ideal of seeing all patients at the time of diagnosis, meaning literally the next morning. Um, and that happened for a little while in our history, but now is mixed at best. I think we don't have psychologists every day of the week anymore, or we have psychologists and psychology fellows, which is great, but they're not available every time the clinic is open. And um, we also are being triaged a bit to see more of the difficult or expected to have more problems, um, particularly developmental delays. Yeah, let me add to that. So Wendy was instrumental when we started what we call a CPAP adherence program. I think Kelly worked with us on that one, Dr. Harford. So 
we have a program where we actually have a psychologist and a respiratory therapist see patients on a regular basis uh, on, on, at a long term. So initially when we started, the plan was to offer the program to everybody. And then they could select because they had to come in more often. They had to come initially two to four weeks and then every, you know, whatever, two months, three months till they, uh, we saw a lot of, uh, you know, non-adherence to clinic visits and a lot of dropout of patients. Um, so now slowly, you know, without changing that, which we are going to change it on paper, but without actually changing the protocol, the protocol got changed to a natural selection where our respiratory therapists, when they see the patient, they look at them and say, oh, this is one, going to be an easy one. I'm not going to put that in the ad program. I'm going to uh, figure out. So it, it becomes a natural selection for them. So now we are going to change our protocol to adjust to our practice, I think, instead of the other way around. Um, it's hard to get these patients come in every three months. Even with telemedicine, it is difficult. So I, I think we just have to pick and choose. I could chime in um, from how I think we do things a little bit differently at Children's National Hospital in DC from the other providers who've spoken so far, kind of a combination, I would say. Um, so I find um, with our, our younger uh, severe OSA patients who've already had TNA, um, that we often will start at a low pressure and we won't um, prescribe APAP and usually just that, you know, uh, CPAP of five, just that low pressure is usually often enough um, for those patients and they really do well and they're able to tolerate the setting. And um, uh, we certainly do use the um, CPAP compliance downloads to guide um, if we need to raise the setting. And of course, um, the clinical symptoms of the family is hearing uh, snoring. Um, on CPAP. So for, I would say for our younger patients, we'll start at a fixed lower setting. Um, and then I would say our obese, uh, severe OSA patients, we will prescribe APAP, um, um, often do like a wide range. Um, and, and of course, kind of use their compliance data um, to guide whether we need to, you know, change the, uh, the range on APAP. And I think um, switching from APAP to uh, um, you know one fixed setting, I, I, I guess it would be based on the the patient's um, tolerance and their comfort. If they're doing well in APAP, we'll keep them on APAP. We don't want to change what's you know if that's working great. Um, but some some patients will say it feels like you know sometimes it's too much air at some point throughout the night. So maybe we'll lower the the high end of the range um, if they aren't usually hitting that high, um, if they'll be more comfortable with that. So um, and 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 I think what really makes a difference with the um, adherence also is that we always talk about expectations before we even start them on CPAP, so families know what to expect. And then we also really try hard. It doesn't always work, but we really try hard to have everyone come in within we hope two to four weeks of getting their equipment, um, so we can get in and help make adjustments, just like you were saying often we need to make some kind of adjustment to their CPAP or um, uh, mostly to the headgear, mask, just minor adjustments that make a huge difference. And once we kind of get in before they really have been using it for months and already have some kind of association with it that they're not tolerating or they don't like it, 
usually that really helps with our compliance as well. And then in regards to titration studies, um, you know, we use the compliance data every single visit we review compliance data and it's so much information and it's every single night that we're able to see this information. So sometimes that really gives us uh, much more information than we would see on a single night titration study that we may not be, you know, be able to get to even a higher settings that you would like to on the night of that titration study for a number of reasons. Um, but we do use the titration study um, for patients that we see this continued residual AHI, and we just kind of want to further target, you know, see if we can find a more optimal PAP setting for them. I'll speak briefly about uh, what we do here at Lurie Northwestern. Um, almost all, and we do, I think everybody's doing everything <laughs> Very, very similarly, we don't use APAP, um, and most of most, almost all of our our patients that are placed on any kind of positive pressure are are individualized. So I think that that it is because many of them are complex craniofacial malformations, neurodevelopmental issues that are that are very significant, and so the therapeutic approach is individualized for each patient, so every patient is seen. Uh, Dr. Allison Clark is our behavioral sleep medicine specialist, uh, uh, psychologist, and almost all the patients are seen by her as well, and we do a desensitization protocol first in order to get them used to the machine and, and before their, their titration. They all have titration studies, and very, very rarely will they have an autopap study. The, 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 the protocol in our laboratory is to, is to titrate from a small, a low pressure up to the, the uh, maximal pressure where the, the technologist stops seeing apneas and hypopneas. And sometimes they try to titrate for snoring like they do in adults, but that is rarely the, the optimal pressure. Um, the optimal pressure is somewhere less than uh, less than the maximal pressure that's titrated, and we much prefer after uh, prescribing the the uh, the optimal pressure because it is clearly better to leave a child that had an AHI of forty uh, with an AHI of three afterwards, three or four, and they'll wear it all night and they have no desaturations and no hypercapnia, then have them get rid of all of the apneas, hypopneas and snoring and wear it for an hour and then tear it off. So, so uh, that is then followed by close follow-up and there is a protocol for follow-up. We see them initially every three months, um, depending upon their age, they may be seen more frequently. Uh, the younger patients, the patients with craniofacial malformations may be seen monthly, uh, but they're typically seen every three months for the first year to assure compliance. And then twice a year afterwards, if they're doing well, and then once a year. The younger the patient, the more frequent we will uh, do repeat uh, evaluations. And those would be yearly. Uh, if they're growing rapidly or if they've gained a lot of weight, and it all depends on, on the, the clinical evaluation. And finally, 
um, when we when we do the follow up, we can make empirical adjustments based on the baseline uh, uh, PAP titration um, and go up a couple centimeters of water pressure, down a, a couple centimeters of water pressure to try to improve compliance and then look at the, the utilization data that's downloaded uh, with each visit. I don't know, Allie, if you want to add to that. Yeah, I think what I would add to that, uh, one of the challenges we face in Illinois is that um, we can't get PAP approved until after the titration study is completed. So um, as everyone has acknowledged, I think all the physicians do things a little bit differently. Um, one of our physicians consistently will prescribe just a sort of generic blower so that the patients will at least um, while getting used to the mask and practicing during the day, at least getting used to that sensation of pressure so that they have that sort of ready prior to the titration study. Um, but I will meet with them pretty regularly. Interestingly enough, um, we actually were doing a little lit review on this um, for a chapter that we're working on. Um, and there was at least one study that demonstrated that um, the pressure, sort of the ideal pressure from titration studies was less than one centimeter water pressure from that found in Autopup. So suggests that what we're doing is working and that there may be a benefit to just using Autopup if we can. The other, the other issue that we find is in the, the more severe patients, um, often bi-level is, is chosen first uh, and the children tend, the ones with, with more significant obstructive sleep disorder breathing have more difficulty with bi-level than they have with CPAP. And that, that um, is sometimes an empirical choice too, to look at the, the optimal pressures on bi-level and then switch them over to CPAP to see if, if it improves compliance when they're not having good compliance at all. So I had just one follow-up question for your program. So are you able to get just masks um, to help with desensitization before you prescribe a CPAP then? Because I don't think we're able to do that. Yes, we were, we, uh, yes, we were able to get masks uh, for, uh, in, a limited, in a limited quantity. And most of the children will be able to go home with a mask, not all. Um, but, but most of them will. And we did have a period of time, which was a wonderful period of time where one of the DME providers was actually giving the, 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 um, the patient's family a flow generator to use during the desensitization protocol. And it would be set at four or five centimeters of water pressure and the children were able to put it on their elbows and blow it, you know, blow their hair dry with it and see what the, what and grad would, and, and Allie would create a, a nice behavioral meta, uh, behavioral approach, desensitization approach to get it closer and closer to their face and put it on and take it off and put it on and take it off. And that would take uh, a month, six weeks, um, sometimes longer, uh, depending upon the child's ability and tolerance. Um, but but with the insurance situation in Illinois now, it's really difficult to just prescribe the uh, the machine. Um, we had some ideas that that we passed through them because there are lots of machines that are 
old and not used and are returned and they're just sitting there in the uh, CPAP junk pile, I guess, getting ready to be squashed or, or um, um, taken for pieces. And, and those machines could have been cleaned and used and upgraded just to play with them for the kids to put them on their, their dolls and on their dog and uh, on uh, their mother or father uh, to just play with. And then they would be switched out for their actual machine when, uh, when they would, after their titration and the optimal pressure was received. Uh, it, right now, because of um, medical legal issues with the machines, the recall of the machines, these old machines really aren't, aren't um, possible, but it would be very nice if new machines that are no, no longer being used could be donated to uh, a DME provider so that they could use these, these machines and really not have to bill for them. Yeah, but to answer your question, we're, we're usually, we just have a small supply from our own department rather than going through the DME company, unfortunately, for the mass. Yeah, in Arkansas Children's Hospital, actually, we are giving masks uh, to all the patients. I think we try and charge for them. I don't know how much we can truly, you know, get back. Um, but I think the hospital does it as a part of just an overall wellness sort of program. So we do um, at least the initial mask when the patient comes in first time for fitting, the respiratory therapist will fit the mask and actually give the send the home send the patient home with that mask, um, and then they they will charge for it. We don't. I I really don't try to find out how much money is lost. <laughs> we haven't been able to charge for the masks. They were uh, we we were able at one point to buy them at a discount. Um, and it, we were provided the discount only if we didn't charge for them. Because if we did charge for them, then the, the company that was providing the mask wanted, wanted the income rather than, rather than our providing them for free. And, and we did provide them for the, uh, for the patients at no charge. Yeah, similarly, we looked into and we can't charge for them. Um, we also were not allowed to purchase them and give them out. So our respiratory therapists will all of us learn that some of the masks that come with multiple cushions, the DME that we work with frequently was only giving one cushion to the patient and then they were saving all the others. And then we said, well, what are you doing with them? So we ended up getting those extra cushions that so that we can hand those out in clinic um and we have a tiny supply also but definitely not big enough that we can fit each of our patients so in terms of pressures i'm just curious um so the asm the CPAP titration, manual titration guidelines saying that for 12 years of age and less, like the recommended maximum pressure for CPAP is 15. So generally, when I see a typical size kid without many comorbidities, um, for their auto PAP, I'll set them 
up to a, a max of 15 unless they are super morbidly obese and I'm worried that that's just not going to be effective. So I was just curious, like, um, if it, what other people do in terms of setting their range. When we, when we get to 15, we switch them to bi-level and we keep the Delta around three to four. Okay. So yeah. So on our titration nights, we do that too. So we have been more courageous with the older uh, kids and we treat them like adults. So we have gone to pressures of, you know, auto in Arkansas children, they've gone to pressures of four to 18 and some really, you know, close like 19, 20, 18 years old who are morbidly obese. I've even done a 22 at times, but then we are really, you know, see them pretty close. We try to get a download, we contact them, make sure that they're not having any trouble with the pressures. Um, even on a titration study, we, I'm sorry to say we don't follow the guidelines perfectly. We watch them and if they're tolerating it, we go to a little higher pressures because somehow uh, one is the bilevel pressure, uh, BiPAP machine is more expensive. And as Dr. Sheldon said, I've really not seen their adherence being better than CPAPs. I think getting a CPAP is easier and using a CPAP is easier. So we just try to stay at the CPAP if possible, unless you know they are having trouble with the pressure. So during the titration, if they don't tolerate it or they come back and say, I can't tolerate, then so it's very rarely that we've moved to bi-level PAP purely for sleep apnea. For for obstruction, CPAP is is clearly better. And NIV uh, bilevel is is clearly better, but but just to stent the upper airway. Um, one of the issues that, that we have found with higher flow rates in smaller children is that, and it depends on the, the area of collapse. And so some sometimes uh, sleep endoscopy can be helpful for that because if the, the area of collapse is low and not at the area of the, the nasopharynx and, and the hypopharynx, uh, increasing the flow can increase negative intraluminal pressure in the airway and, and increase the likelihood of collapse and ex exceed the critical closing pressure of the airway. So you have to back off somewhat on the flow rate so that you, 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 do, you don't um, collapse something that you really want to stent. Do you perform Dyson all your difficult to treat patients or is it a select few? Um, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear what you said. Do you uh, perform dice on all the difficult to select patients or is it everybody that gets diced or? No, not, not it, it's unusual. And usually um, the ones that, that have the endoscopy will, um, uh, will, it will be chosen to be done by the ENT. Uh, our ENT colleagues. Has anybody utilized auto BiPAP? Or in the morbidly obese population, even IVAPs, um, because we do take care of older children in pediatric populations. Yeah, we, we have, um, um, experience with with mostly AVAPs, uh, especially on those children with neuromuscular disease. 
and it, it has been really fairly effective. And we've used in some of some of the youngsters with upper airway collapse, we've used it 24/7 with those with neuro in the neuromuscular clinic that instead of um, tracheostomy where the parents refused tracheostomy, it's been used 24/7 effectively. So I'm just curious with um, a lot of the literature being conflicting in terms of expiratory pressure release, C-flex, biflex, and so forth being helpful with compliance, how often are, are you all using it? Uh, we, we have used it intermittently and I don't see too, too much of a difference. Allie, um, from your compliance, Evaluations. Have you seen anything different? I, I haven't. No, seen not that I've noticed. No. Uh, and we've not noticed. Actually, we we had done an abstract on this at one point in ATS. I don't know if uh, Wendy remembers. So we had not seen a difference with using of the expiratory pressure release on adherence. Of course, the numbers were small, but even clinically, we don't really see much of a difference. So we don't really use it much now. I think we'll use it, um, especially with our patients who have um, higher pressures. And I think sometimes it's um, almost like a placebo, like telling families like, oh, look at this, another option. We have a comfort measure on your device. And I think that makes some families feel more comfortable. But otherwise, I don't think um, I, don't, I don't think it's necessary that we have to use it with each patient. So let me stand corrected here. I just checked with my respiratory therapist about the mass after listening to this. So she says that now we can't charge for it. Uh, we, uh, because, you know, as you said, they're on this um, um, discount. Pro we, we are now in a discount program. So when we get it on discount, as Dr. Sheldon said, because we get it on a discount, we cannot charge for them. But the hospital is... But we send every patient home with a mask. So the hospital is spending some money on our patients. This is now the end of this podcast and we would like to thank you for joining us.